the other lesson here is if it's a haiku you believe in strongly don't you know don't listen to the so-called experts if just go with your your gut instinct hello i'm patricia host of the haiku p podcast and i'd like to welcome you today to episode nine of the fifth series I'm very excited this week because after a long old wait, I'm joined by Roberta Beery, who's going to talk to us about using memory in haiku. But before we go there, I have a few bits and bobs of housekeeping. There are two new submission periods open this month. That's May 2022. If you're listening to this in the future, do go to the website and check out the submissions pages and submit to whatever we're up to. Perhaps you'd like to support the work we do too and buy us a coffee. But if you are listening in May 2022, we're expecting your best speculative haiku and senryu. If you haven't got a clue what I'm on about, do have a listen or watch Debbie Kolodji's terrific workshop. There's a link in the show notes, of course. And your deadline is the 15th of May. Linda Ludwig, our YouTube editor, is reading your haiku and senryu, written in response to our YouTube monthly prompt. You know you can go back as many times as you like to YouTube and add your poetry in the comments. Linda will choose her favourites to feature on the podcast and in the Poetry P Journal. I do hope you'll take part. And I'm looking for poets who'd like to take part in Poetry P's next renku you can email me at the Poetry P contact email. And let me know if you'd like to be one of our Renku poets. Did you know you can hear the latest one on our sister podcast, Poetry P Readings? It's a super piece of work. Do go and have a listen. Now it's time for Roberta's workshop. Roberta is a highly experienced, award-winning poet. In fact, her latest book, One Breath, which she wrote with Maitu Quinn and Willie Walsh, was shortlisted for the Touchstone Distinguished Books Award 2021. She's also the Haibun editor for Modern Haiku. Originally from the US, she now mostly resides in the west of Ireland, from where she joins us today. Let's go and have a visit. Roberta, welcome to P Towers, and thanks for coming along today and speaking to us about memory. I saw you do a presentation on this topic. I, I can't remember where, but it really influenced my writing, and I asked you along so you could do the same for my haiku friends. But before you start your presentation, may I just read a couple of your poems, which illustrate for me why you are the perfect poet to talk to us on this topic. Happy to be here, and thanks for having me, Patricia. Hey, it's, oh, do you know what? I'm so excited, I can't tell you. My son and I, counting fireflies, counting stars. My son and I, counting fireflies, counting stars. And another beautiful one. Strawberry picking, I stumble over my past. Strawberry picking, I stumble over my past. And the details for both those homes will be in the show notes so you can see where they were published. 
Roberta, they're both beautiful, gentle, gentle poems in the best traditions of haiku and really show what I look for in a submission to poetry piece. So they're simple, succinct, suggestive, seasonal. There's that little aha moment. They're in the present tense. And they are definitely not run-of-the-mill haiku. They're a little bit different and exciting. Now, I know you live in the west of Ireland, but you didn't always live there. And I wondered, did you bring your son up in the US? Because pretty sure you don't have fireflies in Ireland. <laughs> I did bring him up in the US. My son and my daughter um, were both mainly raised in uh, the Washington DC suburbs. Although the first few years of their lives, they lived in Tokyo. Oh, me. exciting. And Tokyo, as you know, has a long tradition of firefly viewing. Yes, absolutely. So was it Tokyo you had in mind or, or the U.S.? It was the U.S. because it was um, at that he was at that age when he still liked to spend time with his mother <laughs> and go for walks, but not so little that I had to be in charge of him. Um, it was after, you know, the the sun had set in, in the Washington DC suburb in which we lived and it was just a beautiful night. And we decided to um, count fireflies to see who, which of us saw more. And uh, of course I let him count. <laughs> Cause that's the kind of thing that a mom does. It is the kind of thing that a mom does. You're quite right. As is strawberry picking. But when I was growing up in the outskirts of London that was a real treat for me to go strawberry picking stroke scoffing lots of strawberries um was that from your childhood or from theirs or both that was a that was a combination of both of ours i mean they definitely had a better childhood than i did as far as especially being in the outdoors because i grew up in in new york city in the um, borough of queens oh. even though it was closer to long island the part i grew up in so there were houses with nice big yards and that kind of thing it was still very congested area so any strawberry picking would be an event where you would drive to the country and um, or drive to Long Island and and you know go to one of these pick your own strawberry places which are more prevalent now like my my daughter takes her children to these kind of events on the weekends and they send me pictures of you know, picking different kinds of berries. So when I when I did that, that's kind of like a has you know haiku changes in meaning from when you write it to where you are now. And that one, I stumble over my past was written a long time ago, as was the first one you read, the Camping Fireflies. And so both those poems are different and have a different feeling for me now based on the experience of having children and seeing your children grow up and looking back on my old, own childhood and comparing it to my children and the childhood that my children had, which I tried to give them a better one than I had. And I guess every parent tries to do that. Yeah, I think we probably do, don't we? Anyway, I've, taken, I've chatted on long enough. I'm gonna hand over to you and um, you can take us through your memories and haiku. Well, first I'd like to talk mainly about using memory to craft your, your own haiku. The way that I do this 
because I do collect a bunch of things from my past and my family's past. I don't know if any of your um, poets have had the experience of going through their parents' possessions, which I have done that twice now and also have found things from my grandparents that I didn't know existed that came to me from my parents. And I'm talking about things like old photographs or report cards. I think I found my mother's report card and um, she died in 2013 at age 90. So you can imagine how old that report card uh, was. Um, my Italian grandparents' wedding certificate, which was um, from Brooklyn in the early 1900s. And then my mother's the announcement of my mother's birth, which was both in English and Italian. I also found um, on my Irish side, my father's side, I found his parents' wedding certificate and I found his grandfather's baptismal certificate. It was very tattered and held together with scotch tape. And I, I all these things, I call them haiku artifacts to me are grist for the, the mill uh, for writing haiku. So the first thing I do is um, when people ask me how to write, how to use memory to write haiku, you know, how do, you, how do I use my memories or I can't remember things very well or I'm not good at putting a big memory into a small haiku, whatever the reason is, I advise them to have a look around um, their possessions and see if there's anything that is doesn't have to be valuable in the sense of you know costing a lot of money but valuable in the sense that it holds meaning for you as the as the poet i think you're very lucky um particularly with the, the irish side that you were able to find too much going going back in time because so many documents were went up in flames, didn't they, in Dublin in the 20s? Yes, um, you, if you're, you're lucky if you find anything before 1901, which was the, the census that wasn't burned. Um, everything went up in flames. And I think this was just something that got passed from father to son, the baptismal yeah. certificate. And even the church, it just says on it, Church of Mitchellstown, which is in County Cork. And I went there and also signed by Father McCarthy. <laughs> And I went there just a few days ago. I've made many visits to Mitchellstown to try and find out about the, the Beery side of my family. And there, there is no church of Mitchellstown. I mean, there's just it doesn't exist. And it didn't exist. So I just don't understand. I'm still at a um, crossroads there. But anyway, it didn't prevent, um, you know, writing haiku about my father's experience and my finding things out about my father because also from that era which was first generation to come to the United States to emigrate from Ireland and from Italy or Sicily in my mother's case um, so they didn't want they wanted to assimilate they wanted to be American and they didn't want to hold on to documents so that's another factor that makes it hard to find anything. And I think that's why I never saw any of these things when I was growing up. You know, it was only when I was in my fifties when my parents passed away that I was able to 
find these documents because I, I had access then to their, their filing cabinets as executor of their estates. Should we go on to one of your examples? Yeah, one, one poem that um, it's published in the Unworn Necklace uh, is about my mother's red hat. And this red hat from my earliest days as a little girl, I would see up on my mother's um, closet shelf. It was hidden. It was in a hat box, one of those round hot hat boxes like from the 1940s. And the hat was, it was kind of the kind you wore in a slant and it had a feather okay. and it was very kind of Catherine Hepburn-ish or even going further back, Greta Garbo. And I was not allowed to touch this hat. <laughs> and my mother wore it on special occasions, you know, going out to a dinner or um, going to church. She looked very stylish and my mother was a very stylish woman and uh, wore these clothes beautifully. They looked stunning on her. People thought she was a model even after she had a few kids. Anyway, so I would climb up on her vanity stool. She had a beautiful vanity table in our hallway with the kind of the three-way mirror. I would, I would climb up on the little stool and reach my grubby little hands up and get the hat box to come closer and then it would you know, sometimes fall, but I would try to catch it. And then I would open it up and look at it because I was afraid to try it on. I just thought my mother would somehow know that it wasn't put back in the box exactly as she had put it back in the box because I was a bit of a messy little girl and she was a very tidy woman. I, I thought about that red hat a lot when I was little and even when I was a teenager and the whole time my mother was alive, even when she had stopped wearing it. And at one point she gave it to me and uh, she wasn't working anymore and she had moved to Florida, their fashion sense is much more casual. So she didn't have a need. I think it, I think it might've also been uh, made of um, a wool. I mean, it was a heavy material so she wouldn't oh. be wearing it in Florida. Anyway, she gave it to me and even though I was, also an attorney, as was my mother. I didn't have the fashion sense and still don't that she had. And so I wore it once in a while, but mostly I just thought, I just kind of worshiped it <laughs> and <laughs> still do. I mean, it's still, I, I think I lost the hat box or she, she didn't give me the hat box. I think she kept the hat box. Somebody else got that. But I did write this poem trying to get all these feelings about that hat, the red hat, all this emotion that it still evokes for me. And the poem is Mother's Red Hat, short years of wanting it, long years of having it. So what I wanted to say in this poem, which you know, I do believe that every reader of haiku brings their own experience and, and experiences and so they have their own individual interpretation to how the haiku affects them. But what I wanted to get across when I was writing it was that I had no idea that the time would shift so much because for so long I had wanted that red hat as a child and as a teenager and maybe even as a young adult. And then I just didn't have a concept of that hat being mine ever, 
you know, it just, my mind didn't go that far. My imagination wasn't that big. So when it actually happened, and then now this is going back, I've had that hat for maybe um, 30 years or so, much longer than I coveted it. And, you know, there's a certain irony in that, also in the fact that that hat has really gone out of fashion now. So I, I still do wear it every so often, but it, the whole idea of the meaning that it had to me when I wanted it is gone, you know, because I wanted to, I kind of wanted to be my mother. I wanted to be this beautiful woman with these stylish clothes and pretty face and, you know, nice 1940s style hair, yeah. <laughs> like uh, in those old movies, all those old black and white movies. And, but the emotion of, of it being in my possession and evoking the memory of my mother is something that I didn't have a clue about in those early years. And that's what I think is the power of haiku, that it can, it allows you to build on many different experiences involving, you know, that, that object that has many different memories. Mm. So one object and decades of memories yes. in, three, in three lines. So I think that's that's a really wonderful thing about haiku. I'd like to um, talk about photographs now. Okay. I have I also inherited the, those old photographs um, as the third of four children. Not too many photographs of me. <laughs> many of my sister, and there's one particular one, which I'll I'll read the haiku school photo, the frown my sister grew into. And I think in this one, uh, my sister is wearing, in the early years, we went to Catholic school. And um, those have uniforms in the States when you go to a, it's called a parochial school. Mm -hmm. So she was in a uniform and uh, I think she was around 10 in that. So I was a toddler but I still knew my place in the hierarchy of the family, which was older sister, younger sister. Mm -hmm. And younger sister is not a great place to be. I've since learned that older sister also has its um, issues being the eldest, but um, being the youngest, which I was the youngest for a long time until my younger brother came along. My sister was like a, put in the role of a second mother she relished that role and I detested her in that role <laughs> or when she wore that role, which was quite a bit. The thing about this poem is my sister's frown is what I associate with that kind of older sister mode, you know, because telling a younger sister what to do, you're not going to be smiling. You're going to be frowning. Oh, yeah. So... Now, some people have said to me about this particular poem, didn't that poem upset your sister? <laughs> and actually, they asked me that about a lot of my poems. Didn't that poem upset your ex-husband? Or didn't that poem upset one of your children? Or didn't, you know, so I don't believe in limiting what the, the sort of creative forces because you one is worried about how will it affect the person and the family. 
a lot of times it's a compilation of different people. Like this frown my sister grew into, that was certainly true of my friends. Every single one of us had an older sister. That was just the era. So we all had sort of these bossy older sisters and we all kind of united against our older sisters. It didn't matter if you weren't my older sister. If I was at my friend's house and my friend was angry at her older sister, I was angry at her older sister too. So it was like a camaraderie thing. So I believe that poets have free reign in writing about whatever they want to write about, not asking permission. I do want to insert here that I, I know several poets, haiku poets, poets I've known for decades, and they limit what they, they write because of that issue about not ruffling feathers in the family, or someone in the family has said, you cannot write about me, and they accept that. So I'm not one of those people. I don't accept when people say you can't write about me. Um, I don't run anything by anybody. No, I don't vet my haiku because I think it limits your, the creative spirit to do that. And the subsequent haiku would, we, is weakened, I feel, by trying to tiptoe around people's feelings. I don't think there is a need to close off what stirs the mind when you're writing haiku. So if, you're, if you have a family photograph and that stirs a memory, you know, go with it, Fall, take it where, take it where it, go where it takes you. Don't worry about, you haven't even written anything yet, you know, just see what the memories are unfolding and, and listen to them. My advice is to use the old photographs feel what the memories are that are being evoked from them and then write your haiku. And if you want to share it, share it and send it out for publication. And if you want to keep it to be found among your belongings long after your death, <laughs> uh, do so then, you know, do that too. But one of the main things I wanted to say about memory is it's, um, it's a catalyst. So these photographs, they're a catalyst for evoking uh, something that you may or may not use in a haiku. And if you do use it in a haiku, it doesn't have to be autobiography. I mean, I know there is a school of haiku that thinks every single thing has to be an authentic, actual experience that had to have happened to the poet. I'm not a believer in that. I think it's the real authenticity is does this evoke an emotion in the reader or the listener when they hear or read this haiku? That's what I'm aiming for. I want somebody to read this haiku school photo, the frown my sister grew into, and think, oh yeah, I, I found that photo of my older brother when he was in you know, his class photo, and he's kind of frowning the way he does because he has trouble expressing emotions. You know, it's, it does not, doesn't have to be about the same thing experience but just to evoke a response in the reader yeah. and have a bit of authenticity of myself and in, in my own poem that's that's um where i'm going with these kinds these kinds of haiku mm -hmm. that are based on family artifacts and also if the person now this has happened to me quite a bit by quite a bit i mean at least more than three times <laughs> quite a bit to me uh, where somebody will come up to me and say, I know this haiku is about me. 
and that never happened. Uh, you'd be amazed how many people read the unworn necklace and thought I was writing about them. I mean, people I didn't even know very well. I had met at a conference once or twice. <laughs> and so what I say when people say that is um, uh, it's all, you know, like Emily Dickens says, tell the truth, but tell it slant. It's, it's about all different kinds of people that I've come across in my life. It's not one specific, even when I say my sister or me, it's not necessarily me. me. And uh, I am putting myself in the shoes of the person that had a, an experience that I witnessed, or I'm letting my imagination run wild when I look at this family artifact and using my memories to make something new that, mm -hmm. that a reader can relate to. Yeah. Hopefully, my sister has forgiven me for this. Um, I'm sure she has. Thank you. <laughs> um, then I have um, another memory. This was one of my first haiku that was accepted for publication. Piano practice in the room above me, my father shouting. This haiku goes to a memory of my earliest childhood when I studied piano and my parents, uh, they had, a, I guess today you would say a fractious relationship. They both came from families where it's kind of a New York City thing also where people argue, that's how they, they argue and then they, they don't make up, they just move past it. It doesn't linger, you know, you don't hold grudges, you don't, you're not, you don't stop speaking for days or anything like that. It's like an explosion and then everything settles kind of thing. So, so this poem, uh, I wrote this one at one of my first haiku conferences I went to, which is, was in New York City. And it was one of those anonymous uh, workshops where the whole, all, of, all the attendees are present. And one thing I learned, which I'll tell your listeners, Patricia, is that those anonymous things are never really anonymous because after mine was picked out of many to be discussed, it was, is this a haiku was the question. The, um, Ken Leibman, who's since passed away, but was then the editor of Frog Pond, the Haiku Society of America journal, asked the person who wrote the haiku to stand. And this is, I was, very new to haiku and I was very, um, I lacked, you know, I wouldn't say I had a lot of confidence in my writing or anything. And, and plus we had been, dis the discussion has been, is this even a haiku? So you can imagine how I felt. I got up very, you know, gingerly and raised my hand. But uh, the good thing was that after that session, I think it was Michael Dylan Welsh, uh, who was the editor of Woodnotes, which unfortunately isn't around anymore, asked me to send him that one. Mm -hmm. So I also had my first basic US publication because I had oh. been living in Japan. I had a few haiku published there, but it was, you know, this one is close to my heart. Now, some people ask me, how could you write about such violence or, you know, such um, uh, a chaotic household, you know, where you weren't treated in a loving and respectful manner. Well, this, this memory which of the piano 
is multi-layered now because yes, my father was shouting at that particular time, but there were also other times when, you know, I've, I've, I have also have good memories of, of him and it's kind of who he was. That was his personality. That what I'm saying, like the, 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 the temper and then the joking around right afterwards. So it doesn't have, it's, it's like a bittersweet memory for me. It's not, it's not painful, you know, I'm not a masochist. Yeah. I'm not writing about something that brings me pain. It's, it's a combination of, of, of sadness and sweetness. And I also think about that when that experience of my practicing the piano or, um, you know, it could have been that I was playing a song that he liked and he stopped shouting. He was shouting while I was playing it. And then he listened to it. He could hear the music. And then he came downstairs and said something like, oh, let me sing along because we used to do that, too. So it was it's it's got a lot of emotional resonance for me as the poet. But I also included it to show people that um, haiku poets that it's OK to write about something that sounds like it was negative you know it sounds like it was painful because only you were the judge of your own experience but bringing it and writing about it can in one sense you know heal the emotion that you of the, of the if it was painful it can make other people feel like they weren't they're not alone they somebody else had this experience which was somewhat similar to mine if not the exact one but it, it's also just has many different ter- interpretations and and now when I read it, I think of my son who is a pianist and makes his living that way and teaches at a university. Um, I had many years of listening to him practicing the piano as I sat on the couch across from and they're beautiful memories. And this poem reminds me also of those memories. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you just don't know when you write it. My advice would be don't put something aside because you think it's, it's not appropriate to write about a painful experience because it can just evoke that haiku can then evoke other memories later on when you, when you go back and look at what you've written. Yeah. It didn't strike me as, as violence. It just struck me as sort of family life when there's a lot of you in the house, you right. know, and there were you're playing the us. piano and <laughs> he's off shouting somewhere and he could have well have been shouting at one of your, your siblings. Right, because you know, that's the sort of thing that would have happened in our house. You know, one of us playing the piano, somebody's got the radio on or the or music on somewhere else, and your dad's shouting at one of you to stop. And you know, and so it goes. I just thought it was a beautiful picture, beautiful oh, picture of family life. Really, I wanted to talk about um, also repairing the memory, like the idea of the broken teacup. Yeah, um, Kitsugi and how the Japanese, uh, you know, for centuries would use this mixture of gold and something resin, I think, to mend the, their teacups and that it's the repaired cup is actually with its imperfections more beautiful than the original. Yeah. And to me, that is true of, of memories that when you carry them over into a haiku, I think there's a bit of repair going on and, and make it and fashioning the memory into something that's even more beautiful because it's imperfect. Mm. So um, I don't really wax on about Japanese uh, 
ideas too much because even though I lived in Japan for five years, because I think that, you know, English language haiku is its own thing separate and apart from the Japanese form. Yeah. And each country has its own kind of haiku, you know, yeah. it's, 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 we're not all imitators of, of uh, Japanese haiku, but in, in certain ways, there are certain things that I do think apply. And, and I, I like to think of it as the, the mended teacup, first the broken teacup, then the mended teacup. Don't be afraid of these memories and, you know, listen with your heart open to what they're telling you and what these either memories or the artifacts that we talked about, the, the, the family heirlooms that can be just, you know, an old piece of paper, an old recipe written on a torn piece of paper or, you know, marginalia in your parents' hand in, a, in some, uh, a textbook they used. I actually have one of those of my father's that's falling apart, but um, he, it's, it's interesting to read his, you know, things he underlined and words that he defined. So don't, don't be afraid to explore those things and use it as um, grist for the haiku mill. If you're, if you're open to going back and looking back and applying what happened in the past, you know, applying it in the present and writing in the present tense about the experience so it's even more powerful to the, to the reader or listener. I'd like to um, kind of wrap things up by including four haiku to, for each um, poet. Now these, both these women, the first one is Kristen Deming, the second one is Alan Compton, were longtime um, writing partners of mine in uh, the States. We were all members of the Topath Haiku Group. These two haiku by Kristen are from her book, Plum Afternoon. Uh, I helped her with that manuscript and putting them together. So I know a bit about what memories were evoked in her mind when she wrote these haiku. So the first one is Dawn Moon. Grandfather quietly candling our morning eggs. I, I've come to love that haiku. Um, of course, when she wrote it, her grandfather had been dead for decades, yeah. but the memory was so strong with her in her mind that when I read the haiku in her, in her manuscript, I said, your grandfather would quietly candling your morning eggs. I, I don't know what that means. It's not very clear to me. Is that something that you didn't have a light and you had to use eggshells or something? I mean, I didn't know. What it, you know so she just thought I was a complete city person in my narrow world. And she said, no, candling eggs, it's when you hold them up to the light and check to make sure that they're, um, you take them from the incubator. As soon as she said incubator, I knew we were on new ground for me. Yep. You know, <laughs> I'm at, I, I, she was talking about fresh eggs and, you know, and, and I, I, not the kind you buy in the supermarket. So it's just has become not just because she wrote that poem, but because it brought to me a new experience that I didn't know about, which apparently everybody else, especially those who grew up on a farm or had a few hens when they were growing up, chickens, which you know you can do and um, even in cities knew what this meant. I was in the definite minority. 
but it, it, it is a lovely poem. And when Kristen talked to me about her grandfather and taking her into gather the eggs and uh, how the, you know, it wasn't, the moon was still out and it, they were the only ones up. I mean, so many things there that you get, you don't have to know all the background, you know, you can supply your own through your imagination, but it's just to me a very strong poem. And I'm glad she didn't listen to me because I advised her to take it out of her manuscript, which was then published and won a few awards. And the other lesson here is if it's a haiku you believe in strongly, don't, you know, don't listen to the so-called experts. If just go with your, your gut instinct. The second poem, night feeding, fists of the baby slowly unfurl. Uh, Kristen was well past childbearing age when she wrote this one. I, I'm not sure what year it was written, but I know that she uh, had a few grandchildren and I, I, in my mind, the good thing about this haiku, which makes it to me a quality haiku of both various memories, it's how the night feeding of the baby grandchild evokes memories of the night feeding of the child, adult child, you know, when a baby. So it's very layered and you know, that's just my interpretation. I never checked that with Kristen. I never said, did you write this, you know, when, you're, when, you're, when your daughter was a baby and then rework it and later publish it? Or did you write this about your grandchild? Because it didn't matter, no. you know, it's, it's a very strong poem. And this is one of the poems that is reminiscent, <laughs> the hat tip, it's a this, it's a that, whatever, all these euphemisms. Fist of the baby unfurling. I've seen that since Kristen's poem. Oh. Um, it was published before it appeared in her manuscript, you know, so it has okay. an earlier, much earlier publication date. But it's one of those poems that you know you have a strong one when you see it slightly changed in other people's work. <laughs> the next uh, two are by um, Ellen Compton. She was my longtime writing partner for a long time. It was just the two of us. So these two poems, Funeral Roses, for half a lifetime, the weight of their scent. This is another poem that could be about any a death of a family member or a death of a friend. You know, you don't really have to know the specifics behind the poem to have a, a strong reaction to the poem. The way she, that Ellen crafted this haiku, funeral roses, I mean, the first image, you can just see them and the weight of their scent staying with the poet for decades. But I did ask her privately once about um, roses when I mistakenly, I think, brought roses to her house. And she said, thank you, but please don't ever bring roses again. She was very direct in a way that has kind of gone out of style. <laughs> and she said, whenever I see roses or smell roses, I'm reminded of my father's funeral. And he, I was very close to him and he died suddenly. It was just a really big and painful memory for her, but one that she wasn't afraid to write about mm -hmm. and, and share. Whispers of a fragrance 
my sister loved, evening and spring. I think Ellen was the older sister, but in any case, it was one of those older sister, younger sister relationships. So they didn't see each other that often. And I believe that evening and spring, it's like a little hidden message in there because I think that was the name of the perfume also. Uh-huh. So it was an evening in spring where she's, you know, she can smell the fragrance on, you know, another person because her sister is predeceased Ellen. And I think it, it this might, this poem might've come to her, come to Ellen at her sister's funeral. Uh-huh. You know, that, that she hadn't been seen her sister in so many years. And then all of a sudden somebody's wearing the same perfume that her sister yeah. wore, you know, at, at her sister's funeral. And it, she just said it was such a unbelievable experience. But I, I, I think I might have taken for granted that your listeners know this, but it took me a long time to figure it out that the more recent the memory this goes for most haiku writers, the less strong the haiku is likely to be. Uh-huh. As, as a writer, you need to give yourself time to kind of muse over all the ramifications of these happenings. And I see that as an editor at Modern Haiku. And Ellen and I and Kristen, we talked about this many times that, you know, that you needed a distance between the event that you're remembering and the the writing, the haiku. Now, I think the the funeral roses, Ellen had told me that she spent decades trying to get that one just right. Yeah. And the same thing for me and piano practice in the room above me, my father shouting, that one took decades. It was just kind of a mishmash in the beginning. You know, it's just like not even a haiku. I don't know what it was. It was just like random thoughts written down on a piece of paper in three lines, but they didn't work. And you'll be able to tell you as the writer, before you send your haiku into into Patricia, say it out loud and listen to the musicality of your haiku and spend some time looking at how the words link together and you'll know if it works. You'll know if your haiku works. Listen to what your heart is telling you. Don't just go by what your, you know, your head is telling you. If you get a certain sensation when you're reading your own haiku, if it, if, you know, if it's there's like a that moment, you'll know it. You know, and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. If you if you believe in in your haiku, I mean, send it in and. And if it's one you believe in and it doesn't get accepted, send it someplace else. That's another one of my mantras. And a rejection is just that editor's subjective point of view. Yeah. And it could be that they they just have gotten too many funeral roses, you know, haiku that month, or too many death haiku, or too many sad yeah. ones, you know. I mean. I I do see that as an editor, I know that I get a lot of perfectly wonderful work that can't accept everything just because of um, space issues. Keep going, keep Mm -hmm. looking 
make the past part of the present if, if it's all possible and work it into your haiku. Use the past as another tool to strengthen your, your writing. And, and do please, if you come away with one thing from my talk with Patricia for Poetry Pete, please keep your haiku about the past in the present tense because they they have they have been written the other way but the the quality ones are are very rare yeah. written in the past tense it's oh, it's yeah. don't don't make it harder than it needs to be is another one of my mantras thanks roberta you've inspired me again one of the most important messages i took from the last time i heard uh, talk about memory from you um, was not to be afraid of the painful memories. I think you've made that clear again. But I still have trouble breaking through the pain barrier. But I wanted to share one from Failed Haiku. Low lithium levels. She decorates my hairband with a spider. Low lithium levels. She decorates my hairband with a spider. I haven't quite peeled the whole scab if you like off the the situation I was trying to to write about there but I'm well on the way thank you thanks to you and your inspiration it sounds I think, like it could be a start of a sequence actually well it's funny you say that I am um, putting together a whole collection and it was interesting when you you read your poem about your father and I wanted to ask you did your father ever read that poem I don't believe that he read that poem, which brings me to another point, which is it's much easier to write about these experiences when one's family member is no longer with us or with one. Um, so I, I took care of my, both my parents in their final illnesses, which were several years apart. For all that I'm saying is, you know, write about what you want, write about your, my mother did read the unworn necklace and there's a poem in there about uh, Mother's Day, the a nurse removes the restraints. And when my mother, somehow people in her condo association got hold of the book, I think she donated it to the clubhouse library. <laughs> so other people read it. And um, she said that was a terrible awful thing and it's not even true and I said it's not about you it's about one of my friend's mothers and how could it be about you you know we're out at this uh Four Seasons Hotel having Mother's Day tea you know <laughs> I mean it's, why would you think it's about you and uh but um that was the end of that you know I just said it's you know it's not not about you but uh, yes I did I do especially now that I've made that decision uh to write about whatever I want to write about and whomever I want to write about. Mm -hmm. uh, I, it's very freeing for me. Yeah. And um, of course it helps to live in Ireland and most of my families in the States, but uh, be that as it may, as they say. If it had been about your mother and she was still alive, would you have, would you have published it? I would have. Yes. You would have. Done. I would have had given more thought about what to say. Should she have, brought it up okay you know I I don't lie to people I mean I say but most of my haiku is not about one person it, it, as I said earlier it's a compilation of different yeah. people sometimes this, this is particularly true when you're a beginner you put too much into the the poem 
it's too detailed, if you know what I mean. And when I'm talking to people and this happens, I always suggest that they think about the situation that they're writing about, the image they're writing about, the event they're writing about. And if push comes to shove, write it down like a piece of prose and decide then what's important and what should be in the, the poem. How do you go about that? I go with what works best for the poem, Patricia. And I say, you go with the musicality mm -hmm. and go with the resonance that your poem will evoke. If you get the same feeling from your haiku that you're, you know, the feeling for which you're striving and that you want the reader or listener to, to, to experience a little bit of what you experienced or bring their own experience, people have to be open. They have to be willing to take risks. Oh, that's yeah. another huge thing. Take risks in your writing and yes. give yourself permission to take those risks. So yes, it, was, it wasn't was a full moon. Give yourself permission to cross out, um, you know, a quarter moon and write full moon if it makes the poem a better poem. And, and be risky in your writing, write yeah. things that you're not sure if it's going to work. And then, you know, look at different versions. Yeah and see which one you or your writing partner, you know, listen to them, read it out loud, all different ways, you know, the different yeah. ways you have it written down. And, and then there were a couple of uh, golden nuggets for me. But one, one was your comparison between the event in your haiku, comparing it with Kintsugi. The I think you said the repair with its imperfections is more lovely than the original. And I have to thank you for that because that little line gave me a thought. I now have a, a a haiku in mind for my daughter which I think she'll appreciate you never know with your own children do you but I think <laughs> I'm pretty sure with my daughter what the answer is <laughs> okay fair enough probably the same in mine <laughs> to be honest but I'll try anyway so that was that one and and also I think you made it clear to um and it was clear from your reading that when you use memory from whichever area you take it from however you, you whatever resource you use it's a really effective way of capturing the sort of the, the sabi, the, the melancholy and loneliness um, idea, or even the monono awari, which is the, the beauty of transient things. It, it, it's a very good way, a very solid way of, of capturing that. Aesthetic. I took from those Japanese aesthetics are things that I took with me from my five years in Japan, where I was mm -hmm. also in a haiku group. That's when I was just starting out in the early 90s writing haiku. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they're, they're just, they become part of you. They become part of your haiku psyche. So you don't really think about them when you're writing, but you're right. That is, that is what the best haiku um, has going for it, you know, that deals with memory and the, how things, impermeance of things and, you know, the, this fleeting world that we inhabit and the beauty of things is seen through their imperfections. I mean, it's so much there that um, it's hard to do talk about, you know, in our our brief time together. But mm. it's the more haiku you write, the more that you will be able to develop those those aesthetics yourself, and and it will, you know, improve your writing. I can tell you that from my own experience. But a haiku is not. It, it's a short form. It looks easy. It's all deceptive. It's a hard form. It's a hard form to get right. Don't beat yourself up if, if it, you can't get it right. 
with one haiku. If you just get stuck, move on to something else, put that one aside, you'll find it later in your desk drawer. You know, I find things from like five years ago and it's like, oh, why didn't I just fix this line this way? Well, because I didn't know how to do that and I didn't have the experience, life experience and uh, it would never have occurred to me because I thought it was fine and I didn't understand what was missing. Don't, don't be a hard taskmaster on yourself. And as I say, give yourself permission to Try lots of different things in haiku, even things you've never seen before. And I, and I would, I believe to go for the emotion rather than the effect. That's my own personal view of haiku. I do feel that memory is a gift and that, you know, as one gets older, I do find myself remembering more from my childhood. I can still remember what I had for breakfast, so things aren't that bad. <laughs> but uh, good, you know, it's like you can mine those experiences and realize that there's there are individual experiences, but they have a universal, a, a universality to them that you can craft your haiku and and access that both the sp specific experience, memory, and the um, universal feeling or emotion. So it's, it's, I just think it's a wonderful form, you know, you know, haiku is my one true love, you know, it's my soulmate. Roberta, thank you. A thousand blessings on you for coming along and, and helping us out today and giving us the benefit of your wisdom. And you know what, I'm really looking forward to reading what people send us, having heard this talk. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Once it's us. up there. <laughs> Once it's up. Um, so don't forget, if you'd like to know more about Roberta, please go and visit her website. The details will be on the show notes. Thanks, Roberta. Thank you, Patricia. I hope you were as inspired by Roberta's workshop as I was. And you'll soon get a chance to put that inspiration to good use and send us your memory haiku and senryu. Check out the submission details on the website for all the dates. And of course, if you'd like to know more about Roberta, her website will be in the show notes. Next time in the Haiku P podcast, I'll be reading your original poems inspired by Jack Kerouac. It was a difficult topic, but I was thrilled to read what you wrote, and I hope you'll enjoy hearing the results. Come back for episode 10 and have a listen, and you can find out who has been nominated by the judges for special merit. Until then, keep writing. Do go and have a look at the show notes. And of course, if I've missed anything out, do email me and let me know and I'll put it right. Ciao!